This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the Scottish nobleman Sir Ewan Forbes was born in 1912 and christened Elizabeth, the youngest daughter of Lord Semple. His life is the subject of Zoe Playden's new book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, and the unwritten history of the trans experience. Forbes struggled for years, legally and personally, to correct the gender designation of his birth. He began presenting as a young man in the 1930s. Around that time, with his mother's help, he traveled to Germany to take advantage of early gender reassignment treatments. Then, in 1952, he fought successfully to have his birth certificate changed. He married Isabella Mitchell the same year and settled into the life of a doctor and gentleman farmer. Starting in 1965, Forbes had to fight again in a struggle to inherit his father's title. His status as a member of the aristocracy helped him, but also resulted in the details of his court case being kept secret. While Forbes claim to the title was ultimately upheld, the court recognized his gender as intersex, it did not serve as a precedent other trans people could benefit from. Zoe Playden is an emeritus professor of medical humanities at the University of London, a former co-chair of the Gay and Lesbian Association of Doctors and Dentists, and the co-founder of the Parliamentary Forum on Gender Identity. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event on November 20th, 2021. Playden read from her new book and discussed the implications of the Ewan Forbes story with Elliott Bay's Karen Maeda Alman. Please note, Professor Playden refers to photos at points in her presentation. You can view a video of the conversation on our website, KUOW.org. So what I'm going to do is to effectively tell you the story of the hidden case of Ewan Forbes um, and show you some images. A lot of the images aren't great quality because a lot of the data that I was working with uh, was, um, uh, well, poor quality. But uh, hopefully it'll give you a sense of the importance of the case and of the difficulties that were faced by this uh, trans man pioneer. So, the hidden case of Ewan Forbes. The story of the hidden case of Ewan Forbes starts here. This is the High Court of Justice in London in February 1996. The legal team that I was working with had brought a judicial review of the right of trans people to correct their birth certificates. And we'd shown evidence that trans people had corrected birth certificates in the past without difficulty. 
And we'd argue that they should be able to do so now as a matter of common sense and natural justice. But we'd lost and we didn't understand why. Then, that evening, a man called Terence Walton got in touch. Now, Terence was the lawyer in the famous 1970 legal case, Corbett versus Corbett, the one that involved the transmodeland actress April Ashley. And Terence said, everyone always blames me and April for trans people not being able to correct birth certificates, but it wasn't our fault. Before they went into court, he said, they were taken into the judge's chambers and shown another earlier case, told they couldn't refer to it in court, that everyone involved in it was sworn to secrecy, which now included them, and that all records of it had been removed from the public eye because, and I quote Terence here, there are some interests it's more important to protect than the rights of individuals. And after that, he would say no more. Well, this was a big shock. You always try to avoid conspiracy theory when you're doing legal activism, but coming from such an authoritative source, we had to check it out. And discussing it with colleagues, we decided it had to be a case involving primogenitor, which hopefully in the US you've never even heard of, but which is actually still a law that's in operation over here now. It's this archaic British law that says some aristocratic titles and estates can only be inherited by a man and never by a woman. And if that sounds like systemic sex discrimination to you, well, it is. But there we are. That's how things are at the moment. Until 2013, the British monarchy was decided by primogenitor, and so it's a very big deal. It often governs very big money and huge political power, since it can give the right to sit in Parliament in the House of Lords and govern. So you're not elected simply by being the oldest son in a family, you're given an automatic right to govern, which is, of course, fundamentally undemocratic. Still, as I say, that is still the law. We decided that if there was such a case in existence, this hidden case that Terence had referred to, then it had to be an aristocratic trans man. And what we should do is to start by eliminating the people that we knew about. Well, one of my colleagues remembered Ewan Forbes, and they faxed through his obituary, this obituary here from the Daily Telegraph. And reading it through, it looked from the narrative as though Ewan had actually been intersexed, as if he'd got a natural biological variation of sex rather than being trans. And it also looked as though the court case that was referred to would be easy to find and just eliminate it and move on. And that's where the hidden case of Ewan Forbes began, because wherever I looked, Ewan wasn't there. He wasn't in the University of London International Law Library. He wasn't in the Signet Library uh, in Scotland, which is their main legal library. He wasn't anywhere in the Scottish Records Office. I wrote to the Home Office and to the Lord Advocate, the Head of Law in Scotland, and neither of them would reply. But my old history teacher from school turned up a little item in the Glasgow Herald 
the one that's on the right-hand side of the screen, which gave me a date for the case. And I'd co-founded the Parliamentary Forum on Gender Identity with um, a, a Member of Parliament colleague, and I got her to write to the Lord Advocate. The first reply from the Lord Advocate said there were no records of the case. The second said that there were records, but the Lord Advocate didn't feel it appropriate to release them to a Member of Parliament. And this was inexplicable, because the records of every case have to be available because we have this thing, the law of precedent, that says the decision in one case decides the law until another case in a more senior court changes it. So without Ewan's case, we had no law of precedent. And in fact, it meant that the legal system of the UK was being compromised. Anyway, in the end, it took two years and the direct intervention of the Home Secretary for the case records to be released. And here they are. 500 pages of verbatim transcript of a trial that took place over four days in May 1967, together with the judge's decision. And as you can see, there are endless um, little post-it notes there. Uh, that was what I needed to do to carry out eventually a forensic analysis of the case to reconstruct what happened. Here's the short story. Until the 1960s, trans people self-identified, received affirmative medical care, corrected their birth certificates and lived in complete equality. After 1970, Trans people could no longer correct their birth certificates, have their civil liberties removed, were socially excluded and subjected to a brutal medical regime that included compulsory sterilisation. Now, when I say that they had their civil liberties removed, I mean by that that, for example, they couldn't marry, they couldn't adopt, they had no employment rights whatsoever, if they couldn't pay their car parking fines, then they were sent to the wrong sex prison, where trans women certainly were raped, without the rape counting legally as rape. So there'd been this sudden switch in the fortunes of trans people, from complete equality up to the 1960s, to complete exclusion after 1970. And what I discovered was but the hidden case of Ewan Forbes was the tipping point for this. So, who was Ewan? Well, Ewan was born in 1912, the youngest child of the aristocratic Scottish Forbes Semple family. The family wasn't grand, they weren't dukes or marquises, but they were very distinguished because their titles were amongst the oldest in Scotland and the family had a long history of service to and friendship with the Crown. Ewan's grandfather had been an intimate friend of Queen Victoria. His mother was a close friend of Queen Mary, and his father was aide-de-camp to King George V. So they were distinguished. They had a 20,000-acre estate with the mansion that you've just seen at Fintry, and a castle, Craigavar Castle, on the other side of the estates, 24 miles away. 
Uh, on the left, you can see an aerial photograph of Craigavar Castle. And on the right, you can see the castle itself. And you can suppose that if you climbed to the top of the castle and looked out, then all of the land that you could see, as far as you could see, belonged to your estate and further still. It was a wonderful um, uh, estate. The mansion, Fintry Mansion, is gone now. Can't visit that any longer. It was badly damaged after the family had given it over as a hospital for the British troops in World War II. Uh, but the castle is still one of the most iconic buildings in Scotland, but now under the management of the National Trust for Scotland. And it will eventually be opened again to visitors in the spring. Here are Ewan's parents on the left, his mother Gwendolyn and his father John, in a photograph taken outside the door of Craigavar Castle. And next to it is John, with in the middle uh, his oldest son William stood on a chair and flanked by his grandfather, the intimate friend of Queen Victoria that's always known as Old Sir Willie. It's worth pausing to look at that photograph. Why is grandfather, father and oldest son all in a line there? Well, because they're illustrating physically, literally, the principle of primogenitor. The estate that was old Sir Wallace will, be, will eventually be passed down to his oldest son, John, who will pass it down to his oldest son, William. That's the inflexible rule. And we should just add that if it seems unfair to women, it's equally, or perhaps not quite equally, but it's certainly unfair to men, because, of course, that poor child stood on the chair there has had his life indentured for him forever. He won't have any choice in who he is or what he does. That child is always going to have to be the next in succession and to carry that burden as well as he can. Still, he's only a baby yet. Now, as was the Scottish way, the family had very close, friendly relationships with their staff and tenants, who were regarded really as part of the extended family, as you can see in this photograph. And there in the middle, uh, you can see on the front line, baby Ewan, I'm just putting my cursor over him, sat on his nanny's lap. And on one side is his older sister, Margaret, and on Margaret just there, and on the other side, his brother, William, and next to Margaret, uh, father and mother. And this is our very first glimpse of, um, uh, of you as uh, a baby in arms. This was Ewan's life at Fintry. Huge, wonderful rooms, spacious, beautiful, a massive painting of um, old Sir Wally in his prime, in full Highland dress, towering above everyone in the dining room. Uh, that's one end of the dining room. This is the other. And over here, you'll see there's still plenty of room for a couple of grand pianos and a full-size harp. So this is life in the grand style. This is 
how you and uh, was brought up. The entrance hall of Fintry Manor and its staircase were similarly larger than life. And each Christmas, this particular location was turned into a stage for an impromptu pantomime in which everyone joined. Family, guests, staff, everyone joined in. And this is where we first see Ewan as a child. This is Ewan. He's got his back to the, um, uh, to the stairs. He's standing between two girls, one wearing a crown, one wearing uh, a hat. Ewan, though, is bareheaded. Hair brushed back from a high forehead. His gaze direct and quizzical. His face is thinner than the other children, making him seem frailer, but his chin is tilted defiantly upwards, and he's dressed in some kind of ornate tunic, making him an androgynous figure when compared with the girls in their frocks framing him. And this is Ewan, just about six years old. And I think it's a significant age because we know it's round about six that children start to get their sense of a stable gender identity and to articulate that. Over here, uh, dressed as Britannia, is his um, uh, sister, Margaret. And we think that this probably means that the photo was taken at Christmas of 1918 and Margaret's um, somehow epitomising Britain's victory in World War I. Uh, Ewan's father, uh, John, is sat down here uh, with a false pigtail uh, and make up on like a pantomime Aladdin, uh, while his mother is looking pretty much exhausted, presumably having organised all of this all day in this elaborate um, dress and corseted waist. And in the middle of it all, almost dead centre, is little Ewan. Little does he know what's to become of him. His older sister, Margaret, and his older brother, William, led really quite um, uh, separate lives with their own particular interests. Margaret was very much about raising Shetland ponies. William uh, was one of the UK's leaders in the, well, internationally a leader in uh, developing the airspace industry. But as Ewan grew up, it became clear to his mother that although he'd been assigned female at birth, he was definitely a boy. And so she let him dress and play as he liked at home. He socially transitioned, as we'd say today. And instead of sending him to boarding school where he'd have been treated as a girl, she homeschooled him. And here we can see little Ewan, uh, about 10 years old now, riding his pony, dressed in rap catchers, you know, the informal uh, dress um, uh, uh, for riding, um, setting out on the journey from Craigavar to Fintry, the 24-mile journey. Um, at the front, we have his sister, Margaret, settling her Pekingese dog in her uh, pony cart. And in the middle, the mother, Gwendolyn, uh, who is uh, driving a governess cart. And it looks, while Ewan is staring at us in the camera, happy and looking forward to the adventure, it seems as though Gwendolyn's gaze is on him. And perhaps, like the parents of trans children today, She's starting to feel anxious. Ewan's 10 years old. Well, puberty came later in those days. But a major concern for today's trans parents and, of course, for today's trans kids 
is that the kid shouldn't go through the wrong puberty. And that was going to be an issue for Ewan, just as it is an issue today. Fortunately, though, we're in now about 1922, 1923. Puberty is still a few years off uh, for Ewan. And what's more, there have been advances in transmedicine. Back in 1886, uh, Richard von Kraft-Ebbing had produced the first uh, clinical description of being trans in Psychopathia Sexualis. It's hardly a flattering description, but at least what it did was to identify being trans as uh, some kind of um, uh, physical intersex condition. And this was the view that was then taken, continued to be taken uh, by other experts in the field. Here we have um, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, who opened his uh, groundbreaking clinic uh, in Berlin, uh, his Institute of Sexual Sciences. And on the right there is Dor Dorchen Richter, the uh, uh, first uh, trans woman that we know of, uh, who um, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld uh, gave affirmative medical care to. By the 1920s, Synthetic uh, testosterone was being uh, produced and Gwendolyn, Ewan's mother, took him on a tour of all the medical facilities available. She disguised it as a European cultural tour, but she took Ewan to Austria, Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia and Paris, where he was a guinea pig for early preparations of testosterone. So by the time he was 17, he was growing both chest and facial hair um, and he had avoided the wrong puberty. And here he is. Just a few weeks before his 21st birthday at the Lonnock Highland Gathering, relaxed, happy, friendly. And here he is. Uh, in, the late, in his late 30s, with his gun dog, Bran, and the 16-bore shotgun he favoured over the more conventional 12-bore, he was an excellent shot. He could be crotchety and difficult as he go, got older, but the one thing that everyone would say of Ewan was, no matter what else, he was a brilliant shot. And here he is, in full ceremonial Highland dress, uh, dancing, uh, I think it's the Sean Truce. This was to become a very important part of his life for him. The problem that Ewan faced as an adolescent, or as a child and an adolescent, uh, and indeed as a young man, was that there was a price to pay for the support that he had. Ewan's family was a focus of public attention. His father had a strict code of honour that required public duties to be fulfilled and Ewan was expected to not rock the boat. And to put it simply, on some formal social occasions, his parents gave Ewan no choice but to dress and appear in public as a girl. Speaking about this, years later, he said it was like having his wings clipped. 
we would now regard this as incredibly abusive treatment. But there were more brutal times. And Ewan had a creative response. He formed a Scottish country dancing group, the Dancers of Don, and he always danced the male part, so that on public occasions he could appear as a pub in public dressed as a man and without upsetting his father and uh, uh, the family cart. So here they all are. These are the Dancers of Don uh, dancing uh, at uh, Pintry Manor. And that was a main stratagem. And something else that people say, people, I mean, obviously a lot of people remember you, and, and they say he was an incredible dancer. He could dance on a sixpence. Um, and he was very talented. So Ewan's managing. He's getting by. He's doing well. He's doing really very well. In February 1934, his father died. This is Ewan and the front of the funeral procession with Margaret on the left and his mother in the right. Ewan, hands calmly folded in front of him, walking in the funeral cortege. At this point then, in 1934, the fate of that poor child standing on the chair that comes about and he inherits the family titles and the family estates. While Ewan follows his ambitions, his personal ambitions, to become a doctor. Here's uh, the old Aberdeen Medical School, which Ewan joined in 1939 as a relatively mature student at 27 years old. And this is his photo from the medical school yearbook. Um, and here's an image that we have of him in surgery. But instead of becoming a surgeon, Ewan chose to become a family doctor in his local market town of Arford where his former patients still recall him with great affection. And here he's being friendly and jolly with a patient who just reached 100 years old. And you get a sense. You know, look at the way those eyes are looking at each other and the smiles. And that hasn't been done for the camera, has it? That's a genuine affection that um, Ewan felt for his community and his community felt for him. In Aberdeenshire, a lot of his uh, patients um, were hill farmers living in remote, isolated crops. And Ewan's reputation was that he would get to them no matter what the weather. And sometimes it would mean skiing there or snowshoeing there uh, or going there on horseback. And this is Ewan's life. As he put it, I just lived to serve my community and he was happy. Now, his mother had died in 1944, and there's Ewan and Margaret, Ewan on the right, Margaret on the left, uh, carrying her, um, her ashes for internment at uh, St. Medan's Church. And a few years later, Ewan fell in love and decided to marry. In order to marry, he had to correct his birth certificate, as trans people called in those days, and he married Patty Mitchell the daughter of a hill farmer. There's Ewan again with his gun dog, Bran, and there he is, that's his wedding photograph. Uh, he, was, uh, he wasn't he was tall. Uh, one of his relatives told me that he was a wee man, and uh, Patty was, uh, you know, at least a head taller. But they were very much in love, and uh, 
his patients got up a collection for him and Patty and gave them um, uh, gifts and had a big presentation. You can see Patty there uh, on the far right. And yes, you can see that uh, Ewan is a wee man and uh, Patty was uh, considerably taller than he was. And they didn't care, even though in those days this will seem odd to anyone born in the 21st century. In those days, it was a terrible social solecism for um, uh, a woman to be taller than her partner. Uh, But they sure didn't care about that convention. Patty and Ewan are happy. They're living happily together. And they do so until December 1965, when tragedy strikes. Ewan's brother William died, and the forebears of Craig of our baronetcy became vacant. Now remember, this baronetcy was limited by primogenitor. It could only be inherited and had to be inherited by the next male in line, so it should have gone directly to Ewan. But a cousin turned up from nowhere, cousin John, and he was determined to claim the title for himself. And there he is, right on the right-hand side of the images here, looking burly and surly in the photograph on the right. And he was to prove completely remorseless. William was buried at the peaceful little church of Cushney with a simple stone memorial. And at the funeral, John made it known that he was going to claim the baronetcy. Ewan's first response was to try to appease him. He signed over the 20,000-acre estate and family jewels, paintings and heirlooms to John in return for John not contesting the title. 20,000 acres of estate are repeated, family jewels, paintings and heirlooms. The castle was in the National Trust for Scotland by that time, but still, this is a considerable piece of real estate that's being handed over here. Now, why ever did Ewan do that? And what was he scared of, we might wonder? Well, the answer is, Ewan was scared of these two men. This is, on the left, Richard Green, and on the right, John Money. These are two psychiatrists from the US who were at the forefront of a new pseudo-medicine, not scientific empirical medicine, but a pseudo-medicine which was busy recategorizing trans people. When Ewan corrected his birth certificate, being trans was categorized as an intersex condition, a natural biological variation of sex development. But in the US, a group of psychiatrists led by John Money, enthusiastically supported by Richard Green, were busy recategorizing being trans as a mental illness. And as a doctor, Ewan was aware of this new pseudo-medical trend. And he will have known that at the first gender identity clinic at the University of California, Los Angeles, trans people, gay men and lesbians were being, in inverted commas, cured with aversion therapy, ECT, frontal lobotomy and psychotherapy. So now, in 1967, if any questions were raised about Ewan's status, then he could find himself reclassified as a floridly psychotic lesbian, 
with two-year prison sentences for him and Patty for entering into a perjured marriage. Ewan would be struck off the medical register in disgrace and their lives ruined. And it was worth paying any price to avoid that as far as Ewan was concerned. So yes, handing over the Craig of and Fintry estates was well worth it if it would get John off his back. But what Ewan didn't know was that having taken the money, John had decided to continue claiming the baronetcy as well. And there was a further problem. You remember Ewan has an older sister, Margaret. Here she is, centre of the photo, with her partner, Joan, behind her, and the Queen Mother in front. Ewan and Margaret were estranged. Margaret was in financial difficulties, and John paid her to write a letter saying that to her certain knowledge, Ewan was and always had been female. Now, this was devastating because such a letter in court would be very persuasive. When he found out, Ewan was desperate. He reconciled with Margaret. She understood the seriousness of what she'd done and came over to Ewan's side, effectively destroying John's case. But then, driving along a road she'd travelled hundreds of times before on her way to see Ewan, Margaret collided with a a lorry and a car. She died instantly. Now, Ewan and Patty have to go to court on the 15th of May 1967 for a four-day hearing. Absolutely desperate, his back against the wall, Ewan had created an audacious and impossible defence. It's too complicated to explain his defence to you. I'm afraid you'll have to read the book for that. But it did mean that three years later, in December 1968, Ewan won his case and succeeded to the baronetcy. And in so doing, he caused a constitutional crisis. For you remember, the title subject to primogeniture, and at that period, so was the crown. If a trans man could get a primogeniture baronetcy, then a trans man could be king. And this caused a huge political problem. The focus of constitutional law is to secure succession to the throne. You have to be certain who the next monarch will be for political stability. But now, the heir apparent might have an older sibling, assigned female at birth, who is trans and claims the throne instead. Or the heir, assigned male at birth, might themselves be trans and no longer eligible. Something had to be done to solve this political problem. Two things were done. The first, to prevent Ewan's case being used as a precedent, everyone was bound to secrecy, and the case was removed from the public records. The second thing was to create a new precedent. On the same day that Ewan went to court, the Honourable Arthur Corbett, son and heir of Lord Rowallan, filed a petition for divorce from the trans model and actress April Ashley. Although April hadn't corrected her birth certificate, she and Arthur had gone through a ceremony of marriage. The relationship hadn't worked, April was angry that Arthur hadn't given her a villa in Marbella that he'd promised her. And on the advice of her solicitor, Terence Walton, she'd sued Arthur for maintenance. Arthur could just have ignored April. There was no legal marriage between them and she had no claim on him. But instead, he responded with a petition to divorce April on the grounds that she was and always had been male. 
Together, you and April created a domino effect that damaged trans lives worldwide. John Money and Richard Green had successfully imported their pseudo-medical categorization of trans people as mentally ill. In July 1969, they used the first international symposium on gender identity in London as a takeover of NHS care and the psychopathologization of UK trans people. From now on, in the UK, trans people would be categorized as mentally ill. And this is the background to April and Arthur's divorce, the case known as Corbett versus Corbett, which solved the problem that Ewan had unwillingly created. These are the events that my informant, April solicitor Terence Walton, recounted in 1996. The judge in April's case ignored senior UK medical and scientific evidence and created a sex test of his own, which declared trans people mentally ill and stripped them of their civil liberties. And subsequently, this decision, the decision in Corbett versus Corbett, became a super precedent, damaging trans lives in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and continental Europe, and outlawing a generation of trans people. The consequences were pretty terrible. This is the life of trans people from 1970 to 1996. In 1984, now an old man, Ewan wrote a slender memoir, The Old Days, in which he made no mention of either the trial or the circumstances that had given rise to it. He died in September 1991, his body cremated and ashes scattered, and a quiet memorial held for him in the little church where he'd been an elder. In 1991 too, a trans woman we know only as P took employment with Cornwall County Council. The bullying and subsequent brutal dismissal she was subjected to was to lead to a landmark decision in the European Court of Justice in 1996. The first time anywhere in the world that discrimination against a trans person was outlawed. Like Ewan's, P's verdict took three years to reach. And this is the only photograph we have of her. But for the first time for 26 years, trans people had employment rights and a series of other rights fairly rapidly began to follow. So the hidden case of Ewan Forbes was a springboard for 26 years of the most horrific trans exclusion. The publicised case of April Ashley, Corbett versus Corbett, was used worldwide to damage trans people's lives while Ewan's case was hidden away. Trans people today are still fighting for the restoration of an equality that was formerly theirs without question. And this is a crucial thing, where we've been fighting for new rights for gay men and lesbians what we're fighting for is a restoration of rights that were removed 
from trans people. And that's why knowing this history is important, I believe. For in a democratic society, none of us are equal until we're all equal. Thank you. Thank you very much for that that, that stunning, wonderful, and really deeply troubling uh, presentation. It's you know, I, I, I'm just kind of stunned by your book and by the things that you've said. And also, um, you and I both uh, were alive during, during the 60s, I suppose. Yes. And so yeah. all of this was happening. Yeah. And to know that this is happening in our lifetime, this is for some people that maybe um, are thinking this is ancient history. Um, and there, this is also a great time of unrest today. Um, Still fighting, still fighting for, for rights. So I was really interested in your book and uh, particularly, uh, and you haven't spoken so much of this, but the last chapters where you, you basically do um, a really wonderful history of some of the struggles that transgender people have faced, um, both in, in the U.S. and in the U.K., and you've written about something called the Gender Recognition Act, and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, and I think that is still um, an ongoing um, situation in the U.K. Yes, well, the Gender Recognition Act was um, uh, pretty much a mess. It was the best that we could persuade government to do in 2004, uh, and effectively what it does is give some limited rights to trans people who can provide evidence, medical evidence, that they're trans. Um, you can then apply for a gender recognition certificate, and that gives you access to a pretend birth certificate. Uh, but your original birth certificate still remains online. And one of the problems with the Gender Recognition Act and its certificate is that it encourages this notion of masquerade. It's been a constant trope uh, that trans people aren't really the sex or gender that they say they are, that they're masquerading as that. And uh, the uh, uh, false birth certificate sort of supports that. It has a long list of exclusions from civil liberties. And guess what? It includes inheritance of title. And in the end, it was that that convinced me that trans people had been um, disempowered, disenfranchised uh, to protect those interests. In the last six years in the UK, we have had six bills, one every year, entered into Parliament to end primogenitor, and they've all failed. Each year, one's been entered and it's been killed. The next year, another entered, killed another killed, six in a row. So we can see that primogenitor, although it's an archaic law, it's still a very, very important issue for an awful lot of terrifically important people. And trans rights have been sacrificed to that. We proposed reforming the Gender Recognition Act, and we almost got there. Uh, we had um, a, a referendum uh, uh, on, the, on the matter, not a political referendum, but certainly a national survey. Um, we had uh, an LGBT action group and um, uh, an advisory board to government to take all of this work forward. 
and all was going well until the middle of 2019 uh, when the uh, current uh, reigning uh, government changed its prime minister. And one of the first acts of the new prime minister, Boris Johnson, was to end the action plan, close down the advisory group, remove all possibility of reforming the Gender Recognition Act. Um, And actually, at the moment, I believe, uh, is uh, proposing to end the Women's and Equalities Committee. So we have... Yes, I know, yeah. yeah. I mean, you thought Trump was bad, and sure, he sure was, but we've kind of got Trump plus over here. It's it's very dark. Surely there's a pushback to um, these actions. Pushback is quite difficult. Yes, trans community groups and obviously books like uh, this and other books uh, are published. But one of the problems is that the media over here, even the quality media, you know, uh, the press that we would think would be more balanced uh, isn't. So that we find at the moment that, and this is almost, I can't believe I'm saying this really, but we Mm -hmm. find that the Times and our left-wing broadsheet, The Guardian, Mm -hmm. are equally anti-trans so that trans issues don't get an airing. If they are aired, it's always by an an anti-trans lobby. And we have, over the last couple of years, um, uh, been more or less inundated by a flurry of uh, anti-trans groups, uh, very, very well organised, very well funded by uh, right-wing US uh, evangelical Christian groups, who are using trans rights as a wedge issue to get rid of women's reproductive rights. I mean, ultimately, in the US, their target is, you know, Wade versus Roe. Um, And over here, they actually have made considerable headway in that. They managed to persuade a court to stop uh, trans children getting puberty blockers. Yeah, that was then reversed, but it took months to reverse. And the distress caused in the meantime was just appalling. Um, But the discourse over here has become so right wing. uh, It's very worrying. It's especially worrying if you're a historian, because, you know, as a historian, you keep thinking back to periods when a particular group of people have been singled out and pilloried by the press and piled on without their voice being allowed to be heard. Um, It also means uh, that trans communities are having to spend a lot of time uh, trying to combat this instead of taking forward agendas that need to be taken forward. Um, So uh, uh, it's it's a difficult time. Uh, At the same time, though, I'm hoping that with the the book about Ewan, It's a kind of a rallying cry, I suppose, to say a hundred years ago, trans children were getting affirmative medical care without any problem. Why is it a problem now? Society is supposed to be going forward. Until the 1960s, trans people had full equality without it being a problem. Why is it a problem now? Explain exactly why it's problematic now and it wasn't problematic then. So I'm hoping that, you know, 
by providing uh, trans communities, especially younger trans people who understand things like social media in a way that I don't, but by providing them with their history, uh, that will help to take forward uh, new agendas because they certainly need taking forward. One of the things that you address just very, just very obliquely in your book and is not discussed very often, I think is you, you talk about the connection of some of these political actions to um, reactionary ethno-nationalism, which I would say we might call white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's really under addressed. And I'm wondering why, why did you put that in the, in, in your narrative, um, your historical narrative? And why do you describe it like that? As um, uh, ethno-nationalism. Ethno-nationalism. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the academic <laughs> elbow sticking out of the slip. Okay. That's okay. what we call it. <laughs> yes, all <laughs> right. We're always trying to be polite, you know, right. and say just because someone's white, it doesn't mean they're a supremacist. Just because right. they're a supremacist, they're not necessarily white, you know. So yeah. let's just call it ethno-nationalism as a movement and an idea, yeah, uh, rather okay. than tagging it with things that people might feel related to them. So, um, but yes, well, as a historian, you know, it's impossible for me not to recall that colonialism depended on creating a taxonomy, a system of naturites called, um, of people, um, and that the early taxonomies back in the uh, 1500s had, you know, anyone who wasn't white, European and male uh, was down in the pecking order, and as well as grading people by their colour as black and red and yellow and heaven knows what else, uh, their taxonomies also included, and I quote, monsters and people who change their sex. So there's this intersection, this underlying colonial intersection uh, that has been for hundreds of years of um, uh, race, sex, gender and nation. And these four things are all intimately related. Uh, and that relationship isn't seen enough. We don't understand and think about intersectionality enough. I think you do much more in the US than we do over here because, you know, you've had the benefit of black feminism and black feminists who wouldn't let you get away with any damn thing, you know, <laughs> which we haven't really had over here. Um, but that seems to me to be a crucial area for, uh, for thinking about. So, yeah, so I wanted to raise it as a thing. And also because that's what happens. We do find that groups of people who are anti-trans are also anti-anything else that, as far as they're concerned, is other, you know, with a capital O. Um, that's not them, not me. I mean, yeah. honestly, these people are British. Whatever is British... We've been overrun for thousands of years by all of the rest of the world so many times. You know, we're like mm -hmm. that planet on Doctor Who with the sign that says, <laughs> if you've conquered us, you'll already be at home. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Our language yeah. is a mess of everybody else's yeah. language, which is why I suppose we don't learn other people's because we feel they've already colonised ours. Really? And we're mm -hmm. taking the high ground? 
about being pure-blooded. I mean, one of the oddest, oddest things of all when we see this going on, I think one of the oddest examples is um, uh, the writer J.K. Rowling, the uh, Harry Potter mm-hmm. writer who is strongly anti-trans. And while I absolutely feel for, you know, the personal grief that she's obviously projecting onto trans people as a, a way of trying to cope with the awful things that have happened to her, nevertheless, it does seem odd that someone whose structuring theme in her novels was the opposition between pure bloods and, you know, muggles or mud bloods, mm-hmm. that she would somehow make this kind of arbitrary distinction when she's surely been writing against it in the whole of the Harry Potter series. So there's this ability, this sort of splitting that happens. I think when uh, anti-trans people look at trans, it's as though they're so destabilised by the idea of uh, trans people that it gives them a kind of a vertigo and and a cognitive dissonance. So they hold two different ideas in their head. And I think J.K. Rowling is a good example of that. Over here, I'm very concerned about equality, and I think it's terrible that people talk about mudbloods and so on. But over here, I really hate those trans people, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do is say, I mean, the classic line, some of my best friends are trans, <laughs> but... <Yeah. laughs> kind of reminded me, too, as speaking as someone who's multiracial, there are some some strong parallels, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's interesting, uh, interesting that way. Um, I'm wondering. So you you are still teaching after many many years, and I'm wondering yeah. what are you learning from this new generation? This you're calling them the fourth wave of of trans activists. Yeah, who are very active in the UK. They're very active here. Um, yeah. What are what is surprising you? What are you learning? And maybe what what do you hope that they'll learn from from your work? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, they just make me happy to be quite honest, you know. Um, I'm so happy because this is what we worked for. We wanted a whole generation of young people who hadn't been socially excluded, who hadn't had these awful assumptions, who didn't have to feel guilty about who they were. And lo and behold, here they are. And they're very good at community and very good at organising. Um, and they're very brisk in their dismissal of uh, uh, things that they think are, um, are wrong. And they have often a finely um, at home sense of uh, social justice. So I think what one learns from them, I was just teaching young clinicians um, uh, yesterday, in fact, and we were looking at 1970s feminist texts. And what we learned was how relevant they were today. And the the things that were being said about women in the 1970s, you know, were still being said about trans people. And what was astonishing was just how quickly they picked that up immediately. Yes, they could see that was wrong. Yes, they could see how the difficult happens. Yes, yes. Just immediate and fast. And... um, yeah, it's like standing in front of a warm fire and just feeling, oh, this is so good. Uh, this is wonderful. And so it gives me this huge hope. I also think 
the best thing, the single best thing that uh, fourth wave trans activists have done is to articulate so forcefully um, their claim to a, a non-binary existence. Because that was something that was absolutely not allowed for uh, uh, third wave. Absolutely not. If you even suggested to um, your psychiatrist, who was, of course, the gatekeeper to everything, that you'd quite like to be somewhere in the middle, then you weren't serious, you were off the programme, no meds, no nothing. Off you go. You're just, everything's refused. It was compulsory sterilisation or nothing. For we have no idea how many people would have chosen to be non-binary had that been an option. So this articulation of a non-binary existence, this refusal, refusal to um, let anyone else define what their body should be like is, I think, totally wonderful. And, um, yeah, it teaches you more than anything else that you want to be young again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that I, I really admire that you work, your work as a historian, but also your work as an activist and as a medical practitioner involved in the education of the next generations of medical practitioners because um, they are the ones who will be tasked with carrying out whatever whatever is to come. So for better, for worse, I just looking at things like lobotomies for people that were trans or gay. And I remember that from my education that that had happened um, just a few years before I I started myself as as a nurse. I have a nursing background, but Mm -hmm. um, it's so important for people in those kinds of professions to have this kind of education. So and awareness and perspective um, because they, as you say, they're the gatekeepers. Yeah. Um, and so they need to have the information and the awareness. Yeah. So, um, well, I think we're about at our stopping time, but I'm wondering if there's anything that you haven't had a chance to say today that you would like to, to say to us. Well, it's only the one thing. The, the phrase that keeps resounding in my mind is Terence Walton saying, and he said it with such conviction, of course, there are some interests it's more important to protect than the rights of individuals. As though that was an absolute truth. And I guess I'd like to say there aren't. There are no more interests that are more important than the rights of individuals. Democracy and social justice are important. And until we're all equal, none of us are equal. And that's why we need to take this agenda forward. The trans agenda isn't just for trans people. Yes, it will be trans people who take it forward because it is historically, it's the oppressed who understand oppression. And in their transformation of that into liberation, they release not only themselves, but also their oppressors. Yeah? If we can remove trans injustice, then we will make a better, a more just, a more equal, a fairer society and a more caring society for everyone. And that's why I spent five years writing The Hidden Case of You and Forbes. Very wise words indeed, and a wonderful book. And thank you 
to everyone who has joined us today um, for your good attention. I hope that you'll seek out Dr. Layden's book and also um, join in the struggle. This is something happening in the U.S., the U.K., Poland, Russia, many, many places in the world. And it's, it's a, a really important issue that we're facing. And as you said earlier, we can go forward, but we can also go backward just as easily. And your very deeply researched historical approach has made us very well aware of that. Today. So thank you very much. And thank you very much. Hope to welcome you to Seattle at some point when we can travel again. We'd love to see you. I so city. want to come to Seattle, you know. <laughs> to be quite honest, I was kind of thinking, oh, good, when the book's published, I should be able to go to America and go to bookstores and talk yes. about it, you know. But no, you know, that's well, those are the breaks. Not yet, anyway. Maybe the paperback tour or the next book. So oh, hoping yeah. for our next book from you. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Take care. And um, good afternoon and good evening. Thank you. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event with Professor Zoe Playden on November 20th, 2021. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.